So this week we're week three. And the first thing I'm going to do is, uh, is take us again through the first two weeks just to show roughly where we are at the moment. Um, let's have a look what we did on the first week. We looked at creation, the fall, the Tower of Babel, and the pledge to make Abra- that Abraham was made by God to make him into a great nation and that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. That was all in Genesis. That's all we covered in week one, Genesis. In week two, we learnt about the growth of a nation, Israel, held in captivity in Egypt, the Exodus, the law, and the wandering in the desert, and that they were a grumbling people. And that took us through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so... Tonight, actually, what we're going to do, we actually start rushing forward a little bit more because we've only got five weeks. So um, we're going to go through the majority of the rest of the Old Testament tonight. We'll see the nation of Israel go from the defining high point of entering the promised land of Canaan to probably its lowest point, the almost complete extinction of them as a nation. It starts in the last verses of Deuteronomy when Moses dies and passes on the mantle of leadership to Joshua. So the book of Joshua follows, which follows these other books here, which recounts the entry of the people to, of Israel into Canaan, the division of the land between the twelve tribes. Now the land we're actually talking about is where Israel is today, roughly. These are the 1974 boundaries and the lighter colour in the middle is where Israel is today. And divided up between the 12 tribes of Israel. So each of the 12 sons of Jacob had a different area as part of the, of the um, 12 tribes of Israel. That then takes us to the time of the Judges, which is covered in the book of Judges. Now, if we want to understand the time of the Judges, a passage in chapter 2 gives us a really good place to start. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them, as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So they were surrounded by many other nations back in that map. We saw different nations all around them. And what ended up happening is that the influences of the nations around them and the people who were still in those lands corrupted their service of God. There were better-known judges you may have heard of, such as Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and also lesser ones, such as Ibsen, Elon, and Abaddon, each of whom only get a couple of verses in the Bible. Each of these leaders was sent to guide the people of Israel in God's ways. But crucially, they were not to be a ruler over them. They were not to be a king, they were just a judge. As described in the passage, the time of Israel under the judges was mixed. 
But the constant theme of this time was the acknowledgement or maybe lack of acknowledgement of God as God over the kingdom of Israel. Following this is the book of Ruth, a story from the time of Judges. And then we reach 1 Samuel. So just moving one book on. And the time of the kings. But even as I'm saying that, I am reluctant to use the phrase time of the kings because it could give the impression that this was just a natural progression that they just reached a point in their lives when they thought it was about it was the right time to have a king actually there should have never been a time of the kings in the last couple of weeks we have been learning that god is king he is king over creation and he is king over the people of israel Back in Judges, the people had gone to the judge Gideon and asked him to be their king. And this is what he said to them at the time. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But in the book of 1 Samuel, the people again ask for a king. Johnny and Louisa, could you come up and... Yes. (laughs) Quick reading from these two. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you. The Lord replied, For it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plough in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Thank you very much. (laughs) Wonderful. 
little insight into how God sounds when he speaks to a prophet there. If we are in any doubt that, people, that the people did wrong, then let's look at another verse, a couple of chapters on in 1 Samuel, which says, I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will re- realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. It was an evil thing, that's clear. But let's turn our attention to God's reaction to this rebellion. We hear that God explains the consequences of gaining a king, what what will happen to them. But when the people still insist, then he permits them to follow that course that they asked for. And Samuel chooses Saul to be the first king over the people. But in appointing a king, the people have established a new relationship with God. They are to serve the king faithfully, and the king is in turn to serve God as his representatives. So the fate of the people now becomes linked closely to their king. What happens to the king happens to the people as a whole. So what was the fate of the kings? The, book of one, the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel detail the rule of, three, of two kings and a prophet, King Saul, King David, and the prophet Samuel. Saul, we probably know of Saul. Saul started quite well as a humble servant of God, guided by his spirit, but the power went to his head, and he failed to keep specific commandments given to him by God. So God rejected him as king, And Samuel was instructed to anoint David to succeed him as king on his death. David ruled for 40 years and saw the 12 12 tribes of Israel united as one nation. He was a godly man. But this didn't leave him free from hardship or temptations. His adultery with Bathsheba is well known. And his subsequent murder of her husband Uriah was a particular low point. But confronted by Samuel, he repented and remained a man after God's heart. David poured his heart out in song, and many of the Psalms are attributed to him. So, moving on another book into 1 Kings, David's reign was followed by that of Solomon, who, when God offered to grant him anything he wanted, he famously asked for wisdom. Much of the book of Proverbs is attributed or inspired by his wisdom. And Song of Songs, they say, is either written by or for him. Solomon was a wise and powerful ruler, and he built God's temple in Jerusalem, which was the focal point of worship for the people of Israel. His many pagan wives and concubines often led him astray, but at other times his heart was really for God. And many believe he wrote the Ecclesiastes as an expression of how everything is meaningless without God. And then Solomon was succeeded by his son Rehoboam, who, ignoring the advice of his experienced advisors, decided to take a tough line, a new tough line with the tribes of Israel. And he imposed large taxes on them. In 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam says to the leaders of the the 12 tribes, my father made, made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. 
I will scourge you with scorpions. Rehoboam is starting to sound very much like the oppressive kind of king that had previously been described by the prophet Samuel. And so the nation that started with Abraham and is brought together by David actually splits into two distinct kingdoms. The southern kingdom of Judah, made up of the tribes of just Judah and Benjamin, ruled by Rehoboam, and in the north, the kingdom of Israel, which was made up of the other ten tribes, and they selected a man called Jeroboam to be their king. And the history of these two kingdoms is contained in one king's and two kings. An alternative description of the whole period also can be found in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, which takes us another couple of books on. And then there's another um, few books which cover the same period from the perspective of the prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, just about crosses over, and Hosea. So adding those books to the ones we mentioned earlier, we see the time of the kings makes up a great deal of the Old Testament. Um, And actually, in fact, in the number of chapters and words, it makes up an even bigger percentage than you can see there. Historically, the books in the Bible, these set of books, was actually called the former prophets. I think this is actually a useful description, which perhaps correctly draws more attention to the roles of the prophets that spoke on God's behalf during this period than to the kings that led the people sometimes too, but often away from a relationship with God. Right, we're going to try something new this week. Every, every week something a bit different. Breakdance. Sorry? I'm not going to get Johnny to fight with me tonight, no. I'm afraid you've had Johnny's star turn for the tonight. The challenge we have is that with so many books of the Bible and so many kings... There were two kingdoms. There were 40 kings, spanning a period of 346 years. Now, if you'd like me to take 10, 15 minutes on each king, we possibly can, but you're not going home tonight if we do that. So we're going to have to find a way to go through it a little bit quicker. And I thought we'd start by trying to play a little game. Now, I haven't ever tried this before. I don't know how easy it will be able to see these on screen. But I'm going to give the handheld mic to Adam at this end. I'm going to work our way down. Now, this is the northern kingdom of Israel. And the 20 kings, actually very neatly, there are 20 kings of each kingdom. And we're going to play a little game. Good king or bad king. Now, it's actually it's quite easy. When you look at the Bible, it actually says quite quickly, it says... This person did evil in the sight of the Lord, or this guy pleased the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to go around. We're going to probably do maybe ten from the northern kingdom, and Padley's going to put his Bible down. <laughs> is that cheating? That's cheating, yes. It's cheating. Right, so we've got 20 names on there for the northern kingdom. We're going to go through the first sort of ten people with the northern kingdom. And your job is to, out of those 20 names, pick someone who you think... Please the Lord. And I'll tell you, and I will try with my cheat sheet to try and tell you a little bit about them as we go along. So, 
Pick yourself a name that maybe you can pronounce. If, you, if anyone um, can't see or doesn't want to, just pass the microphone on and we'll go to the next person. But Adam, pick a name for us to start with. Of a good king. Of a good king. We're looking for kings who please the Lord. Zechariah. Let's have a look. That's who they were going to go for. You'd be wrong. Ooh, evil. <laughs> Let's have a look at Zechariah and see what he was up to. Let's have a look. Zechariah, oh, he was only... Is he moderately bad? <laughs> He's not too bad because he was only in power for six months. <laughs> he succeeded by his father, but he was assassinated after six months. So he, maybe he didn't get a real good chance, but the Bible does say evil in the sight of the Lord. Moving on, let's have another name. Uh, Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second. Oh, hold on, I've gone up. Oh, sorry, I went to the... The second. Evil. I'm afraid. Let's have a look. I'm afraid he was... Yeah, he was a particularly bad one, I'm afraid. <laughs> um... He, would brut- he brutally oppressed the people. Sorry about that. Let's go for another one. Let's see if we can find a good one. Hosea. Hosea. What's a good name? He shares it with a prophet, but it is not the same as the prophet, and he is evil. <laughs> now, he, re- he actually, re- he's the last one. He revolted against Assyria upon the death of... The, of um, of their ruler, and he was actually the last one, and he before, they were sent into exile as a result of what he did. So, no, I'm afraid not, not so good on that one, Johnny. Well, so I'm picking one because there's a song named after him. Okay, yeah. And I can sing the song for you, which clearly... I'd rather you just said his name, I think everyone else would as well. It goes, uh, Shalom, my friend, may peace be with you, Shalom. Oh, Shalom, okay, Shalom, Shalom, I can't, I don't know, okay. And the winner is... Oh, unknown. Right now, now, what was the story behind him? Let's see. Oh yes, he was, he was only on the throne for one month. Actually, the Bible gives him a bit of out. He didn't even do enough to even get warranted as good or bad. So he was um, one month on the throne, and then he Am was ass- assassinated. So you're picking him. Louisa. Am I looking for good ones? Good ones. Okay, let's have another look. Pleading ish. Yeah. Now, Elisha commanded that a prophet anoint Jehu as king. He murders all the previous kings before, so not quite so good. Did he? I, I haven't got that down here, but. Um, um, he was one. He, he didn't. He wasn't completely evil in the in the Lord's sight. So he did some some redeeming things. I think I'm going to go for Ahab. Ahab. Oh, was he a bad Oh, what a great choice! But wrong, evil again. The luck is not really good. Let's have a look. Son of Omri. Okay, let's get this one. Did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him? So, not doing very... Okay, let's have a couple more and then we'll... Come on, someone's got to go for it. Joram? Jo, the one, this one in the middle next to... Are you thinking maybe he's next to another pleasing one? That's a good idea. I get that, but... No. Let's have another look. 
He was quite evil, I think, yes. Um, Maybe, but uh, no, I think he was... um, he wouldn't get rid of Baal worship. His mother was... Oh, that's right, yes. I think he was the... Um, his mother was Jezebel, and he would... No, he refused to turn from the influence of his mother. Okay, let's go for one more. I'm going to try Bayash. Bayash. At the top. Good, good. Well, whatever his name is, yes. Evil. Oh, dear. Right, so, no, he was just another person who was evil. Okay, we're stopping the Northern Kingdom there, because actually, we're not doing very well, because actually, the Northern Kingdom didn't do very well. <laughs> yes, as in he was, let me think, yes, it wasn't he's like short in stature, um, just to say. Seven days is all he lasted. He only lasted seven days. So he had a very short life. But if we go through, they were all, except for one who, even, who wasn't called it, evil in the sight of the Lord. Says the book, says Kings. So, they followed their own path further and further from God. And they remained strategically strong in the area for a while, but at the end, their moral disintegration caused disintegration of them as a nation. Perhaps best known was King Ahab, who ordered that everyone had to worship Baal, the god of his wife Jezebel. The prophet Elijah comes to the scene, and you may notice where he confronts the king that Baal is powerless, and there's a bit of a showdown on Mount Carmel, where God sends down fire on the sacrifice. Also well known often is King Jeroboam II, who was very powerful, but brutally oppressed the people. In the end, after ignoring the warnings of the prophets, God allowed the northern kingdom to be exiled into Assyria, where they were scattered across the empire to stop them from regrouping. And the land was resettled actually by a mixture of people who became known as the Samaritans. And the resentment between them in the northern kingdom, what was the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, and the southern kingdom, the Jews in the south, was still evident over 700 years later in the New Testament. So when the good Samaritan came along, these were the people they really despised because they'd taken over the land, which had been the northern kingdom. So which is why the, the good Samaritan it was such a, a polarising figure that you thought, oh man, you couldn't possibly like a Samaritan. Okay, the southern kingdom. Let's see how we get on. Let's go to our southern kingdom. We have 20 more names. Let's see if we have any more luck with the southern kingdom. Looking hard. <laughs> We're going with deep thought rather than guessing. Let's go for Uzziah. Uzziah, okay. Right in the middle there of the rain. Get the mouse to come back. There it is. Pleasing! Oh, what are the odds of that? (laughs) You see, you guys just didn't think for long enough. He was co-regent with his father for 23 years and then crowned king of Judah, but he was one who pleased God. I want to go for Manasseh. Below, okay, let's have a look. Oh, evil. Not too bad, but um, no, he was very much responsible for, let's have a look. Oh, I'm afraid he was one of the worst kings of Judah. (laughs) He killed Isaiah. 
and he turned heavily to the Canaanite practices of the people around. So, no, unfortunately. Um, he did, though, repent at the end and return to Jerusalem and return to the Lord. So he did do repentance, but he was also mostly bad, I'm afraid. Joash. Joash. Oh, oh, sorry. Jumped ahead there. Joash. Pleasing. Doing much better now. So he, Joash was placed on the throne of seven. And the high priest was initially ru- ruled with him and, and oversaw his reign. Um, he, and, the, and Judah prospered and turned to God after his reign. But actually, once the priest died, he wasn't quite so good, actually, and started to turn back. But generally, he was judged as pleasing. So, well done. Because I like the name Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. <laughs> I had to shrink the font down to fit him in. Pleasing. <laughs> he was co-regent with his sick father. On the death of his father, he turned to Yahweh, and um, he actually formed an alliance with Israel. But actually, he did have some wobbles as well. But again, he repented at the end of his life. So, Josiah. Josiah. Where is he? Okay. <gasps> and another pleasing. You can see this is rigged, can't you? Came to the throne at the age of eight. He served Yahweh and brought about revival for Judah. Oh yes, this, uh, he's a great one actually to pick because whilst repairing the temple, he found a copy of the scriptures and they read it to the people and he led the people in a prayer of repentance. Great king. Pads, now, if, <laughs> there's no pressure on you at all to pick a, <laughs> a pleasing king. With your, but with your in-depth knowledge of the Bible, this should be a cert. I, I, I think you've picked all the pleasing ones, so I have to fail. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Uh, the pressure's getting to him. Mm, no, I think I'm going to go for... I can't remember the... Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Was that said with knowledge? Pleasing. You can have confidence in him still. <laughs> yep, he actually dis- he, um, came to the throne and started a period of revival. You obviously knew that. He destroyed the Canaanite idols and repaired the temple. Uh, he resisted calls to revolt against Assyria, um, but um, he turned to the Lord when, um, at the very He was another one who turned to the Lord and was delivered in the end. Yeah, Paz is nodding. He knew that, obviously. I'll go for Ahaz. Ahaz. Yeah, she's thinking, like you're thinking, oh, so close. He was the opposite of his father, Jotham. Oh, that gives you a, oh, a little clue there. He followed Canaanite rituals. He even sacrificed his own children. Yes. Um, and he ignored the warnings of Isaiah as well. Um, right. I think I'll have to go for Jotham, won't I? <laughs> you sure? Can't believe I let that slip. But he was pleasing, yes. He was a good king. Um, he followed God and prospered. That's all we know about him. Lee. Amon. Right, here we go. Evil. Ooh, so close. 
came to the throne at 22, quickly returned to idolatry. He was murdered by his own servants after two years. So, no, so loathed. Very lastly. Asa. Asa at the top. Okay. Pleasing. Pleasing. So, he was a godly king over a period of reform. Fantastic. He was rebuked by the prophet at the end of his life. He didn't actually repent of that, but generally he was judged as good. Kirsty, do you want to... Jehoram? Evil. (laughs) They're a harsh audience here, aren't they? Jehoram... um, Ooh... Oh, crikey. Okay, I'm going to read this one. I wasn't, I wasn't going to finish, but this is... The co-regent with his father, Jehoshaphat, for a few years till his father died. Then he murdered all his brothers, all high-ranking nobles, to protect his position. Um, he married Ahab's daughter um, from the other kingdom. He followed her into the worship of Baal. Um, so the Philistines and Arabs plundered Judah and the king's palace and killed most of his sons. And then he died a terrible, painful death with a disease that made his bowels fall out. So, not too good. But, let's have a look at the pattern of the remaining ones. So we see in... And he wasn't short again. Here again, he was a nice short... So... Judah, on the other hand, was a mixture of good and bad kings. Those who, lent them, those who led them in times of rebellion against God and those who also led them in repentance. There were several good kings, like Asa, Jotham and Josiah, who led the nation in worship and trusted God in spite of the threats of the other nations around them. Most notable bravery came from Hezekiah, who, guided by the prophet Isaiah, trusted God for the nation's security in spite of the looming threat of Assyria that overtaken, had already wiped out Israel and they had, would they stand up to the people of Syria? It saved the people of the southern kingdom for a while but ultimately they were exiled as well. They decided to trust in their own strength and in the alliances of the nations around them even when the prophets told them that wasn't the right thing to do. True strength laid with God, not man. And in the end, exile was inevitable as it was painful. A series of deportations from the new empire of Babylonia left the land of Judah almost unpopulated. So at the time of the kings, there isn't actually much of kings left. They've been wiped out. But had anything not worked out as God has said it would? Hadn't God explained the consequences to the people of their choices? When the prophet Elijah confronts King Ahab and the people of Israel on Mount Carmel, he gives two clear paths that were, that were available to them. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Baal was one of the um, idols, one of the gods, one of the local gods who they had an option of following. He said, which, which way are you going to go in life? The primary issue that both kingdoms had 
was that they put other things ahead of God in their lives. The first step was that they wanted their own king to rule over them in place of God. And even when God allowed this, sometimes they turned to worship of false gods and idols, such as those as Baal and Asherah. Sometimes they adopted local religious practices into the, and they adopted them into their faith. They set up animal idols, more calves, or even sacrificed their own children. And sometimes they just allowed themselves, I don't know if it's better or worse, just to be controlled by the political motivations of all the nations that surrounded them. But it was against the warnings of the prophets. God has set up the rule, the rule on idols pretty firmly. We learnt in the Ten Commandments, we looked at them last week. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second one was, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. And so when the people of God turned away from God's path, there were consequences for them. The issue of idols is one that we still face today. If an idol is anything that we set up in our lives as a replacement to God, what are the kind of things that are idols in our lives? Well, actually, anything, if it elevates itself in importance above God. For example, job and money, relationship, clothes, food, and most notably, often, ourselves. We must be clear whenever we talk about idols that, and potential idols is that often, in themselves, they are not bad things. It's just that they should not be given position of authority in our lives over God. So will God always stop us from going near these things, our idols in our life? If we look at the example of the Israelites, then the answer is actually no. God warns the people about the consequences of setting up replacements for him. But when they insisted, and if we insist on going our own way, God will allow us to pursue our choices. But this will lead to consequences. And ultimately, as the kings, as the people of Israel became linked to the fate of their kings, our fate becomes linked to what we follow. If we follow drugs or money and they come first in our lives, then our fate will be linked to them. But if we follow God, then our fate becomes linked to him. Returning to the story of the Israelites, a question could develop as to how a caring God could abandon his people to their consequences of their bad choices. And we could ask the same for us. Well, the fact is God never abandons his people. He never stops calling to them. Through the time of the kings, God constantly sent prophets to warn and guide the kings and call them and the people back into a right relationship with God as king. But wasn't the end the scattering of the twelve tribes of the the Israelites? What about God's pledge to Abraham of an everlasting nation? Did God discard his promises? Well, actually, um, he actually reaffirmed his pledge to King David in those times. In 2 Samuel 7, we read... 
the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In particular, he's talking about Solomon. But there's also elements you can see there maybe of a looking forward to the time of Jesus. The passage promises to David and his descendants a throne that will be established forever and that God's love would never be taken away. David was from the tribe of Judah, which, as we saw earlier, did rebel against God. As a result, and in accordance with God's declaration to David, the king and the people were subjected to judgment. However, the people of Judah were never completely wiped out. And at the end of the Old Testament are the books of the minor and major prophets. And even as the kingdoms of Israel and Judah declined, the prophets spoke of their destruction, but also at the very same time they spoke of a restoration of God's people under a new king. Jeremiah spoke about a time coming when God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah that he will put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This isn't a God who has given up on his people. After a period in exile, the remnants of the 12 tribes of Israel started to return to Canaan and they rebuilt Jerusalem that was previously destroyed. And as they did, the prophets continued to share God's word with them to draw attention to the things they'd done wrong and to call them back into a right relationship with God. This is our God. When we have strayed from a right relationship with God, when we have replaced him with idols in our lives, when we have refused to trust his path for our lives, even when we have rebelled against his authority, when we are in a place of exile in our lives, this is the God who continually is calling out to us. This is a God who, out of his overwhelming love for us, opens his arms wide to welcome us back at any time into relationship. He is a God who calls out to us. The question is, are we listening? There's an old clip from an old film, Bruce Almighty, but I think it makes the point very clearly that sometimes, are we listening? So even when God is trying to get our attention, sometimes he's calling and we're just not listening on his wavelength. We're not trying to listen to what he's telling us. So as we go into our discussion time now, <clears throat> ask you, especially at this time of Lent, it might be very pertinent, what is God calling you to put aside so that he can come first in your life? <clears throat>